what we have to do is we have to make processed food safe. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's where I think things are going. And I think some companies, I won't say all, some companies are getting the message. And so I think that ultimately that's how we're going to do this. We're going to do this through basically blame and shame game, you know, one company blaming the other. And ultimately they'll all end up doing the right thing. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. I'm your host, Jeff Ostroff. Healthcare on the Horizon is about where things stand now with the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of specific diseases and how things might change with those in the future. We hope you'll find the information here useful in an educational sense, but also perhaps in a more personal way, should you, a family member, or a friend have one of the medical conditions we cover. Please note, the information shared on this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for the advice provided by your physician or any other healthcare professional. Hi, everyone. We're back with part two of our two-part episode with Dr. Robert Lustig, and we're continuing our conversation about metabolic syndrome, including what you can do to improve your metabolic health. You can find out more about Dr. Lustig at the end of this episode and in the show notes. Rob, so if I'm a consumer, I'm thinking about metabolic syndrome, there's four stages of processed foods. Four seems to be the worst one, the one that damages a lot of things. Right. If I go into a supermarket and I'm in those middle aisles and I see a packaged soup, a packaged cereal, any kind of packaged product, even a frozen product, right? should I be worried about those things? That's the problem is how do you figure that out? A simple way is look at the number of ingredients. If the number of ingredients is more than four, then worry. That's uh -huh. one way. Second is to look at the first three ingredients. If any of them is a sugar, it's a dessert. Yeah. The yeah. next way to look at it is to look at the carbohydrate to fiber ratio. The question is, do you have to do all of that? And do you have to, you know, pour over the nutrition facts label? Because it doesn't really tell you what you need to know. Because what the, the nutrition facts label tells you is what's in the food. And really what you want to know is what's been done to the food. And they're not going to put that on any label. Yeah. So is there a way to be able to figure that out? And actually, I'm working on that with, a co with colleagues as well. And we are developing a recommendation engine called Perfect that will have all of these things. And it. it's still in stealth. It's not available yet, but it will be available this year. And people can carry the app on their phone and basically just point it at a product and you don't even have to look for the barcode. It will identify the product and it will basically tell you, is this healthy or not? Because it will have done all of the calculations for you in the background. So you will know, you will know whether or not a food will make you healthy or not. And if you have specific needs, specific dietary restrictions or specific diseases that you have to be careful about, it will tell you about those. It sounds phenomenal. Rob, I want to come back to something you said earlier. When we see this 88 to 93% in the U.S. of the population estimated to have metabolic syndrome, and it's pretty bad in other parts of the world, is the main cause of that what we're eating? Or is it also that we're not moving around as much? If we ate, we would move around more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. If we ate properly. 
And yeah. the reason is insulin resistance. We have shown that insulin makes you slothy. Ah. So there are two things wrong with the food, the mitochondrial problem and the inflammatory problem. Yeah. Okay. So you're the mitochondria, sugar's the bad guy for the mitochondria and lack of fiber is the bad guy for your intestinal inflammation. Okay. Okay. So you need a low sugar, high fiber diet. That's called real food. What we yeah. have, unfortunately, is a high sugar, low fiber diet. Yeah. That's called processed food. And it's the both the mitochondrial defect and the inflammatory process that leads to this thing called insulin resistance. And if you have insulin resistance, you don't want to exercise. Isn't that interesting? And we have proven that because when we fix the insulin, we get the insulin down, people exer start exercising spontaneously. That's fascinating. So everybody always says, oh, you know, whenever I feel like exercising, I lie down until it goes away. Until the <laughs> goes away. Well, there's yeah. some truth to that, yeah. okay? Because yeah. you feel lousy. You don't want to exercise, okay? But when your insulin goes down, you have the energy to burn because you're not storing it. Yeah. And then you actually will spontaneously exercise. And we've actually demonstrated this in children. So there's so many good reasons why you would want to eat better, eat healthier. I'd like you to split some hairs for me here. We're talking about carbs. We're talking about a problem with the brain and carbs. It's carb syndrome. I was trying to come up with that term. Differentiate, please, between sugar and carbs. There are some good carbs, correct? No, there are no good carbs. No good <laughs> carbs. There's no such thing as a good carb. There are some tolerable carbs. Tolerable carbs. Okay. Can't make any carb a good carb. Okay, how do you make them tolerable? Which are the tolerable ones? All right. So there are two things that will determine whether a carb can be tolerable. One is it's the fiber content. And the other is whether or not the carb is, well, there are two, there are two forms of starch. One's called amylose and the other one's called amylopectin. Wow. And this is the concept of glycemic index. But really, glycemic load is more to the point, and that's because of the fiber. So, how to explain? Amylose is what's in beans, lentils, legumes. Amylose tends to be brown. Amylopectin is what's in bread, rice, pasta, potatoes, and those tend to be white. So, you got brown food, you got white food. Amylose is a string of glucose molecules, one string. There's an en there are enzymes that cleave the glucose is off until you get to zero, okay? So it takes a while for the enzymes to chop up the starch and turn it into glucose molecules. It takes a while, which means that the rise of serum glucose will be lower and longer. And therefore, the insulin rise will be lower as well. And that's the goal is keep your insulin down, get the insulin down. Yeah. Amylopectin, is like branched. It's like more like a tree. It's got lots of branches. And there are enzymes that will chop up each branch. And so it will liberate those glucose molecules a lot faster. Yeah. Because it won't be just two enzymes on the edge. It's going to be a thousand enzymes all at once, chewing them up. And therefore, you're going to get a big spike and then a big fall. And that's going to generate a big insulin rise as well. And that's what's going to end up forcing energy into fat. So the more amylose and the less amylopectin, that's one way to make a carb more tolerable. The second way is fiber, because the fiber prevents absorption. The fiber prevents 
the absorption of the carbs into the bloodstream. And actually makes a lot of those carbs food for the bacteria because they didn't get absorbed early. So the bacteria will chew them up. So the combination of amylose plus fiber, you know what you can call that? Real food. <laughs> okay? Yes. Because the bread, rice, pasta, potatoes are all processed or they've been, you know, uh, like uh, polished, you know, like the brown rice has been polished to white rice. Okay. That fiber, you know, brown rice was actually good. Yeah. And, and it reduced the rate of absorption. So that's a way to think about carbohydrates, you know, and starches and how to make them work for you instead of against you. That's very helpful. I love the way that you've differentiated there. Thank you. Couple of other things before we ask you about what the future might have in store. I heard you say something very interesting about COVID. I think you said that the populations which actually are more third world in nature, they're not the developed countries, less developed, tend to be doing better in terms of incidence of COVID versus developed. Not incidence, mortality. Mortality, okay. They did better in terms of mortality. They, they had a much lower mortality rate. And the reason was because they weren't insulin resistant. Uh. Those poor countries can't afford our crappy food. And so they're very insulin sensitive. So there are three things that make increased COVID morbidity and mortality. And, you know, they were bandied about by uh, Fauci nonstop over the course of, you know, the, the pandemic. And they were black and Hispanic, you know, people of color, the obese and pre-existing conditions. Okay. So what do those three things have in common? People of color, the obese, pre-existing conditions. They have one thing in common, consumption of ultra-processed food. And the reason is because insulin, remember insulin is high in metabolic syndrome. Insulin generates increased levels of the door to COVID. Wow. Every cell has a receptor on its surface, every cell, because it helps regulate water in the cell called ACE2, A-C-E-2, angiotensin converting enzyme 2. Okay. And this is one of the ways cells control their water content. Insulin raises ACE2. Well, COVID is so smart, it uses that ACE2 molecule as the injector point. Wow. So more insulin means more ACE2, more doors for COVID to enter. So that's first problem. Second problem, lack of fiber. Lack of fiber means fewer short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, propionate, acetate, these are anti-inflammatory agents. And it turns out you don't die of the virus. You don't die of COVID. You die of the immune response. Now, you need an immune response because basically you have to have a chain reaction to get the whole immune system onto getting rid of the invader, as it were. But then once the invader is handled, you need to ratchet it back down so you don't do any more damage. It's a phenomenon we would call immune resilience. Short-chain fatty acids play a major role in ratcheting things back down so that things don't fly out of control. It's like, you know, you need a controlled chain reaction, like a nuclear reactor is a controlled chain reaction, as opposed to a nuclear bomb, which is an uncontrolled right. chain reaction. Yes. Short-chain fatty acids 
are the way to maintain the reactor and not make it the bomb. Okay. Yeah. And short chain fatty acids come from fiber. So the lack of fiber means the lack of short chain fatty acids, which means the bomb. And yeah. so you die because your immune system basically killed you. And then the third is hyperglycemia itself, high blood glucose. Turns out the glucose actually crystallizes around the edges of those ACE2s and holds them open. Makes it even worse in terms of the virus. So because of the insulin problem, because of the short-chain fatty acid problem, because of the hyperglycemia problem, that's all related to ultra-processed food. And that's why people of color, the obese, and pre-existing conditions, which are all metabolic syndrome, had the hardest time with COVID. In other words, if we had fixed our food, COVID would have been in the rearview mirror a long time ago. And yet, Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, we don't hear very much of that at all. That analysis. No, no, we heard nothing. Yeah, I mean, it, nobody's saying that. I was, I was actually a fan of Fauci. I know there are a lot of people out there who are not, okay? I thought he did the best he could given the cards he was dealt, and boy, he was dealt a really crappy set of cards at every level, including the viral level and also the political level. Yeah. But the one thing that he did that I will not be okay with was he told us three things. He told us hand washing, social distancing, masking. That's what he told us. Those are the three things. He didn't say anything about food. Nothing. Nobody said anything about but, food. Right. Nobody that said That was it. a mistake. That was, in my opinion, that was his biggest mistake. Yeah. And he, but he wasn't alone, Rob. I mean, nobody's, you're talking about it, but I don't hear much being well, said by anybody it, about that. You know, it was out there. It was out there. It was out there. It was there. a conscious decision not to, not to go there. Oh, not to go there. The other thing I was going to ask you about before we talk about the future with metabolic syndrome is meat. I heard you say at one point in another discussion that you are, I forget the exact word, but you're an agnostic when it comes to these different kinds of diets. Absolutely. And so you're not a purist saying you should be a vegetarian. You're certainly not a carnivorian, if that's the right term, a carnivore person. So talk a little bit about meat in the context of metabolic syndrome, please. So everybody thinks red meat is bad. Now, I'm not here to say red meat is good. Red meat is bad. I'm not saying it's good. The question is, why is red meat bad? Everyone thinks the reason red meat is bad is because of the saturated fat. That is not why red meat is bad. Turns out the saturated fat in red meat is cardiovascularly neutral. And there are two kinds of saturated fat. There's red meat saturated fat and there's dairy saturated fat. And they are not the same. Turns out red meat saturated fat are even chain fatty acids handled one way in the cell. And dairy saturated fat are a chain fatty acids with a specific phospholipid signature, which is actually protective against heart disease and diabetes. So dairy saturated fat turns out to be good for you. Red meat saturated fat is not good for you, but it's also not bad for you. It's neutral. So then if it's not the saturated fat, what is it? Well, it could be the iron, the heme, which is an oxidative stress could be the branched-chain amino acids, the leucine, isoleucine, baleen, found in corn-fed beef, chicken, and fish, which is only really U.S. red meat, U.S. beef, because New Zealand has double the food meat consumption we do. Argentina has 
double the meat consumption we do. And they have lower instances of type 2 diabetes and heart disease than we do. Wow. Even though they eat twice as much meat, they actually have lower levels. So it's not the meat, it's what's in the meat. And our meat is corn-fed, which is why it's all fatty. You know, that's what the marbling. Theirs is not. Theirs is homogeneous. Tougher to cut, but still just as flavorful, okay? But that's our meat because we feed our cows corn. Are cows supposed to eat corn? No, they're supposed to eat grass. But there isn't enough grass, and the cows are on these concentrated animal feeding operations where they have to ship in the corn. And then, of course, the cow can't move. It's lying in its own excrement. It's going to get sick. So they have to pump the cow full of antibiotics. Uh. Those antibiotics get into the meat. Then we eat that, and then that changes our microbiome, which then has detrimental effects on us. So that's the other problem. Yeah. Okay, and then finally, meat also has high levels of a compound called choline. Now, you need choline. Choline used to be called vitamin B4. Now it's called choline, which is fine. Now, you need choline because you need to make acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter for the brain. And you also need it to make phosphatidylcholine, which is a method for moving fats around the body, lipid transport. Okay, so you need choline. But if you consume excess choline, the bacteria in your intestine will turn choline into a compound called trimethylamine, TMA, which then gets absorbed, goes to your liver, gets oxidized there called TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, which turns out to be the stickiest substance your body can make. And so it can line your arteries, your liver, and also foment that insulin resistance that we talked about. So red meat has plenty of reasons to be concerned, but saturated fat isn't one of them. Okay. So if somebody were to eat red meat, thinking about the metabolic syndrome, the impact on the mitochondria, the liver, and the pancreas, and so forth, grass-fed would be the key? Would be much better. Better. Would be better. Not perfect. Because you wouldn't have the branched-chain amino acids, and if it was organic, you wouldn't have the antibiotics, etc. But you're still going to have the heme, still going to have the choline. It'll be better. It's not going to be perfect. And I'm not telling people to stop eating beef. Right. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. What I'm saying is you should think about things. Don't be mindless. Yeah. I really hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you are, can you please do me a small favor? Let some of your family members, friends, or others in your network know about it and about healthcare on the horizon. If you happen to like this podcast, my interviewing approach, or perhaps even my voice, please consider checking out some of the many services my business provides. These include podcast hosting, creation and consulting, voiceovers, professional interviewing, production of audio or video promotional profiles to help you sell your business, promote your services, increase your customers or raise funding, and services to help you market to the large and growing seniors population. That's something I've actually written a book about. To learn more about all of this and my other podcasts, Looking forward, opportunities for job, career, business, and investment seekers, please visit www.jeff-ostroff.com. You can also email me at jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. What would you say about chicken, Rob? Depends. Chicken has the same problems. Same problems. Okay, I mean, it doesn't have as much choline. 
but it's got the same problems. And we raise chickens in sorry states as well and give them antibiotics too. Yeah. Here you are telling us about the things that you're involved with, with other people, companies, individuals, physicians like you, to try to make some good changes that will help people be smarter consumers of food, hopefully to eat better. Of course, there's some opposition to that because it requires major changes from certain companies, not to mention individual consumers themselves. Indeed. Where do you see things going, Rob, in terms of preventing, diagnosing, treating metabolic syndrome just through the decade? If you want to go beyond, that's fine. This is a train who has left the station. People know the food is a problem. Okay, They didn't before, but they know it now. Food industry has actually generated the data, and that's why you're seeing all this tumult around food right now. So the question is, how is it all going to fall out? Look, processed food is not going away. It's not going away, okay? And I'm not even sure we want it to go away because we have to feed 10 billion people by the year 2050. We're not going to have the land to do it. So we're going to have to reduce wastage. And one way to do that is food processing. What we have to do is we have to make processed food safe. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's where I think things are going. And I think some companies, I won't say all, some companies are getting the message. And so I think that ultimately that's how we're going to do this. We're going to do this through basically blame and shame game, you know, of one company blaming the other. And ultimately they'll all end up doing the right thing. Let me follow up on that. Let's take this back a step. What about the education of clinicians, of medical students? What's happening there? They need to know to look for these things, which you said they're not testing, they're not looking for. The good thing is that the medical students are not yet indoctrinated into this calorie thing. And so they're coming at this with their own concerns because they see what's going on. They've seen their own friends die already from metabolic-related diseases. And so they're coming in and they're actually demanding better information from the medical schools. So I think that medical education will change. And I'm doing my best to try to help promulgate that. But as you can imagine, you know, especially, you know, what we learned from COVID is that there's a lot of misinformation and there's also a lot of disinformation out there. And so we're going to have to work very hard and provide the science to proof positive for any changes that will ultimately be made. Do you see the testing of insulin levels, fasting insulin levels, becoming more commonplace in the next several years, Rob? Yeah, I think that's going to be like the next two years or so. All of this, in some way, comes down to our individual behaviors, our individual decisions. How much can we move the needle with consumers, or is it simply we're going to only be able to do that by improving the quality of the processed foods? Will people stop consuming all the pizzas and the donuts? For any public health intervention, you have societal intervention, you have individual intervention, okay? Individual intervention we call rehab. <laughs> societal intervention we call laws. Yeah. Rehab and laws, rehab and laws, rehab and laws. That's how we've dealt with every public health crisis that we've had. You need both. You can't do either one alone. You have to do both. Yeah. And for sugar and for ultra-processed food, we've done 
nothing. For alcohol, we have both. For street drugs, we have both. For opioids, now we have both. For tobacco, we have both. For sugar and ultra-processed food, we have nothing. And so we need to institute both of those in order to make changes. Do you see that realistically happening in the next 10 years or so, Rob? Do you think we can yeah. do it? Yeah, I see 10 years. Excellent. It's going to take 10 years. I tell people all the time, I said, think of it this way. In the last 30 years in this country, we have seen four, count them, four cultural tectonic shifts in society. And here they are. One, bicycle helmets and seatbelts. Two, smoking in public places. Three, drunk driving. Four, condoms and bathrooms. Yeah. 30 years ago, if a legislator had stood up in a state house or Congress or Parliament or the Duma or anywhere else in the world and proposed legislation for any of those four things, they had gotten laughed right out of town. Nanny yeah. state, liberty <laughs> interest, get out of my kitchen, get out of my bathroom, get out of my car. Yeah. Today, they all changed. Yeah. All four of them. Okay. How come? And why did it take 30 years? Answer, we taught the children... The children grew up and they voted and the naysayers are dead. <laughs> that's, and that's why it takes 30 years. New generation. New generation. Yeah. You have to wait for the old generation, the naysayers, the troublemakers to die. Yes. Unfortunately, you and I belong to the old generation. <laughs> Don't remind you gotta me. You got to die. Don't remind me. <laughs> Rob, this has been so interesting. Where can our listeners go to find out more about the great work you're doing, your books, including Metabolical, which is a terrific book, and anything else that you'd like them to know about? Well, there are a lot of things. Number one, you know, robertlustig.com website, you know, with all the stuff on it. My books, Fat Chance, Hacking of the American Mind, Metabolical, Fat Chance Cookbook. My nonprofit, eatreal.org. We're trying to get real food into K to 12 all over the country. I'm doing a good job of it too, I might good. add. I'm an advisor to several companies, one of which is Levels Health, which uses continuous glucose monitoring as a method for keeping the glucose down and keeping the insulin down, which is even more important. Yeah. So these are all things. Basically, everything that I'm associated with is something to try to fix the problem. And you have to use different pressure points in different ways for different populations. And so they're all important and they all work in concert. Yes. And I know you're not alone, but you are really out there amongst those who are trailblazers trying to make sure that the word gets out about the dangers of sugar, about how the focus, which has so much been on obesity and on glucose, Glucose levels right. needs to be more on the metabolic syndrome right. and on the processed foods and the problems that are created by that. Think of it this way. Glucose, for lack of a better word, is good because glucose actually improves mitochondrial function. Isn't that interesting? It activates two enzymes involved in mitochondrial biogenesis and improve mitochondrial function. Glucose is, for lack of a better word, good. Fructose, on the other hand, the sweet molecule and sugar, dietary sugar, inhibits three enzymes, rendering those mitochondria ineffective. That's the problem. 
Wow. So the problem is fructose. Problem is sugar. Yeah. People think that carbohydrate is sugar. Well, carbohydrate gets converted to glucose. That's true. But again, glucose is something mitochondria can handle. Yeah. Okay. Thanks again, Rob. This has been great. Very illuminating. My pleasure. Thanks for being on Healthcare on the Rise. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. I hope you've enjoyed it and will benefit from it. And if you did like it, please share this episode with anyone you know who you think might also find it of value. And if you have any comments or questions about Healthcare on the Horizon or any suggestions for future topics or guest experts, you can reach me at the website www.jeff-ostroff.com or through my email address, jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Thanks.